0: Open your Bibles to Mark, chapter 10. Uh, It's on page 897 if you have a Bible from uh, the welcome table. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses today. Chapter 10 serves Mm -hmm. as a summary of sorts for Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, In this chapter, we're going to see him traveling with his disciples. We're going to see him teaching uh, a crowd again, uh, and and then individuals. We're going to see him dealing with the immaturity Uh, of his disciples surprise surprise Um, we're going to see him confronting the opposition of religious leaders we're going to see him performing miracles not all in the first 12 verses here but in this chapter and and we're going to see him again for the third time predict his suffering and death and resurrection basically everything that he's done in the first nine chapters of of mark's gospel so so 10 is like a microcosm of, of all that jesus's earthly ministry is about okay And it's this recap basically for us, preparing us for what's coming because chapters 11 through 16 focus on the final week of Jesus's life leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection. Now, Mark doesn't record much of Jesus's teaching in detail um, the way some of the other gospels do, but in chapters nine and 10, we have this longest stretch of Jesus's teaching recorded in Mark's gospel. And it's all designed to prepare our hearts as readers for what's coming in the last six chapters as we think about, along with Christ's disciples, what the kingdom of God is and what it means to follow Jesus as king. And so today we're gonna see how a conversation about divorce helps us better understand discipleship and union with Christ. And so whether you're single or married or widowed or divorced or remarried, you have something to consider in this text today because it's ultimately gonna challenge you to think about your relationship with Jesus. It has implications for us as the bride of Christ and him as our bridegroom and how we think about our union with him. So uh, it is a shorter passage, so I'm gonna read it first and then we'll pray again and then we will dig into the message. So here it is, Mark 10, one through 12. He set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he replied to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful that it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe because it contains uh, the truth of the gospel. It points us to Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Rescuer, our Redeemer. And so this morning as we talk about a a difficult topic, Lord, I pray that uh, it would be saturated in the hope that we have in Jesus. I pray that it would be uh, uh, richly comforting as we gaze upon our bridegroom in his faithfulness to us, and as we consider uh, his call for us uh, in faithful obedience to him. So, Lord, take your word, take your spirit, and work together this truth in our hearts that we might know Christ better and uh, and grow in our love and our commitment to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You just slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. No need to be coy, Roy, you just listen to me. You hop on the bus, Gus, you don't need to discuss much. You just drive off the key, you leave. And get yourself free, right? You know what I'm talking about? 50 ways to leave your lover. Catchy song by Paul Simon, terrible advice. And technically he only gave five ways and not 50, (laughs) right? But here's the thing. We don't really need help coming up with the other 45, do we? Because when it comes to relationships, we want unwavering commitment from others, but we don't like to give it in return. We are people that are prone to look for a way out. And this seems especially true in marriage. We have an ideal in mind when we say "I do," but somewhere down the line, the reality hits us of the cost and the sacrifice that's required to keep the vows that we've made. And then we start to think about whether or not it's worth it. And then the moment we be, begin to think that it's easier uh, if we just go our separate ways, we start looking for the way out. We start looking for the way to leave. Now, I want to be as sensitive as Possible here because I know that that um, there's probably no one in here that is not affected by divorce in some way, shape, or form, and I don't want to bring shame or guilt or accusations against anyone. Nor do I want to casually reopen wounds of uh, past or 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 present for anyone. Or nor do I want to downplay um, faithfulness on anyone's part in in a in a covenant relationship with your spouse. But I'm willing uh, again. I'm willing to bet just because of the prevalence of divorce in Bible times and and all the way into today, um, we're all familiar with with the pain that it causes. We're all familiar with the brokenness that it reveals. And so it's important that we acknowledge that because it's only going to strengthen the point that Jesus is making in this passage today. And if we're willing to listen to what he has to say about marriage and, and divorce and take it to heart, it's going to deepen our love and our commitment to Christ as our bridegroom, and help us rest in his love and commitment to us as his bride. And so here's sort of the main idea for us to consider this morning. Because marriage is reflective of the the Christian's union with Christ, we must not seek to separate what God has joined together. Because marriage is reflective of the Christian's union with Christ, we must not seek to separate what God has joined together. So we're going to see this this morning in, in sort of two scenes, Jesus is going to be um, confronted by the Pharisees, and then he's going to, to have a conversation with the disciples. And so this first scene is, is uh, with the Pharisees. Let's, let's read this, these first four verses again. He set out from there and went to the, re- the region of Judea and across the Jordan. The crowds converged on him again, and as it was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he replied to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. Now, Jesus and his disciples are making their way down south to Jerusalem. Bible talks about going up to Jerusalem all the time, but that's from any direction because Jerusalem is elevated, okay? So if if your Bible says they're going up to Jerusalem, they're going down to Jerusalem, from galilee up around the, the the sea of galilee where he's been doing all of his earthly ministry and so they're making this journey now to jerusalem guess what's going to happen there right we're getting to the end and so um uh, mark says that they left there and they left the, the province of galilee and they they headed to the provinces of judea and then he says across the jordan or maybe your translation says um the trans jordan or whatever um uh he's he's referring to the eastern side of the Jordan River, which is the the um, the province of Perea, okay? Um, that may be significant in a moment. We'll talk about that. So even though the, the bulk of of Jesus's ministry has been in Galilee, chapter three reminds us that crowds have come from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, Tyre, Sidon, and from beyond the Jordan, the Transjordan, which is referring to and so it's not surprising that that crowds converge on him as they travel further south. And Jesus is not one to pass up a good teaching opportunity, right? And so it was his, the, the main focus of his ministry to come and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is near, and and call people to repentance and and to believe the good news. This was his custom, and so he taught them. And then the Pharisees are back on scene, and Mark lets uh, lets us know that their their intention in verse two. What does it say? They came to test him, right? Now, this shouldn't surprise us because they've been plotting with the Herodians to kill Jesus since chapter three. And, and uh, the word for test here that Mark uses is the same word he uses back in chapter one when he's talking about the devil tempting Jesus in the wilderness. So he's giving us a glimpse into the nature of, of Jesus's enemies, right? They're hostile toward him. They, they ask him this question in order to trap him. And so they set the trap with this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, it was widely known uh, that that Jewish law permitted divorce, and so that's not the the main focus of the question. What Mark implies here in his gospel, Matthew spells out in his gospel. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? That's the main issue that they want to talk about this morning or that they want to talk about with Jesus here. Their question is based off of Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. It says this, if a man marries a woman but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Now there are two main schools of thought around that verse. There's a conservative school, uh, and they, they, they revolved around, uh, around two words in that verse, one around the word something and, and the other one around the word indecent. And the, the, uh, the more conservative view under uh, Rabbi Shammai focused on the word indecent. And they argued that divorce was only permitted in the case of adultery. That's the only grounds that divorce was permitted. The more liberal view under Rabbi uh, Hillel focused on the word something. And they, they argued that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. And, and just listen to some of these for a second, okay? Whether it was uh, his wife committed adultery, uh, if she cooked him a bad meal, okay? Um, or, or if he just got tired of the way she looked and found a prettier woman. Yeah, right? Um, they had 50 ways to leave long before Paul Simon did, right? The Pharisees' motive behind asking Jesus this question in verse 2 isn't entirely clear from uh, the info that Mark gives us here. But we, we know they want to trap Jesus. He tells us that. They want to test him. But we're not quite sure. We don't really know exactly what angle they're getting at um, other than that they're, what their focus is on, on the all things make divorce permissible. Um, we do know this, that the region of Perea, remember I said that might be, might be important later, that was governed by um, Herod Antipas. Do you remember Herod? Uh, Back in, what was it, uh, chapter three or four? Um, This is the same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist at the request of his wife Herodias, who Herod and Herodias were married to other people before, and they divorced those people and then married each other, and John said, nope, you can't do that, it's against the law. And so she held a grudge against him and talked Herod into beheading John the Baptist. And so the Pharisees could be trying to force Jesus into, uh, to say whether or not Herod, while they're in the region, was justified in his divorce and remarriage. And so if he says yes, he's going to be at odds with John the Baptist and and what he says, right? And so this could ostracize Jesus from from the people that have been following him because they upheld John in high respect as a prophet. But if he said no, then he'd be at risk of offending Herod and potentially suffer the same fate as John. So win-win for the Pharisees in their minds, right? That's a potential angle that they're going at here. Um, that may or may not be the case. Mark doesn't tell us, he doesn't spell it out, uh, but, it, but it's, it's logical. At the very least, the Pharisees are attempting to get Jesus to go against the law of Moses, the, the Torah, their written law. And so Moses is their highest authority. They always appeal to the law, right? And so twice in these first four verses, the Pharisees emphasize the fact that divorce is permitted by Moses. And Jesus knows what they're up to. So he answers their question with a question, which is usually what he does when he faces opposition, right? So what does he say in verse three? What did Moses command you? You notice the difference? You notice how Jesus focuses on what Moses commanded and the Pharisees focus on what Jesus or what um, Moses permitted. They're fixed on the exceptions to the command, but Jesus is going to zero in on the intent of the command. In verse four, they summarize um, the, the passage in Deuteronomy twenty-four by saying Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. They don't come out and say it, but they they like the liberal interpretation of the law. Their view. Is, is focused on uh, that word something. They want to have the reason. If, if, if she doesn't cook me the meal I want, I want to be able to write her a divorce paper and send her away. And just like we've seen Jesus do over and over again, he redirects the conversation to expose the heart and he brings out the true intent of the law. Look at verse five. But Jesus told them, He, meaning Moses, wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, the full passage that Jesus and the Pharisees are are talking about here is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says this, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If, after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her and sends her away from his house. Or if he dies, the first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is the passage. The hard-hearted rebellion of the, uh, of the Israelites led to serious defilement Uh, of, of marriages and serious defilement of the society of God's people. It's messy, right? And so the provision that Moses gave in Deuteronomy 24 was not to encourage divorce. We need to understand this, but to instead limit the spread of defilement in the community. He never commands divorce, but he does concede that it's going to happen because of the people's sin, and so he puts these sort of guardrails in place to help limit the, the the destructive nature and maintain dignity and purity as best as possible. So he made regulations uh, to make it difficult for a man to dissolve a marriage without providing a legally valid reason in writing. He couldn't just send her away. He had to he had to go through this process and then to preserve the dignity of the woman in a patriarchal society by giving her the right to marry another man if she chose. And so this passage in Deuteronomy 24, it's, it's damage control when divorce happens. It's not a command for people to get divorced. Moses never offers divorce as the solution to marriage problems. We can't say the same thing about our culture. Jesus points this out to the Pharisees, and then he moves to the real heart of the matter, which is God's intention for marriage. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, Jesus appeals to scripture too. He's quoting uh, from Genesis chapter one and two here, but he he uses it to go literally back to the beginning, past the Torah, before the law was ever even given. And he goes back to creation itself and the order of creation given by God himself. Listen to the language he uses here. God made them male and female. That's Genesis 1:17. We are his creation. We are made in his image. When you make something, you get to decide, you get to determine its intended purpose and use. Genesis 2.24 that says that because God formed Eve from the body of Adam, out of his rib, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Jesus is making God's intention for marriage very clear here. His whole point is that God is the one who has made man and woman, and God is the one who makes them husband and wife. And when God unites a woman and a man together in marriage, that bond is permanent because they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, Jesus says, because of all of that, because of all the things that he points to in verses six through eight, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Twice the Pharisees point to the exceptions to marriage and twice Jesus points to the intention of marriage. They're concerned with what, or they they are concerned with what Moses permits, and Jesus is concerned with what God has designed. They want to separate what God has joined together, and Jesus only wants to strengthen the bond that's been made. To separate what God has joined together goes against the express design and purposes of God. It's a violation, not a vindication. And so again, I want to be sensitive here because of the, the prevalence of, of divorce in our day and age. And in some abusive situations, it could literally be matter of life and death of whether or not a person stays or, or they leave. And so I want to be clear here. I'm no, in no way saying if you're an abusive relationship that you need to stay and endure that. If you're, if you're being abused, that, that just, you know, that's your cross to bear. That's that's not what I'm saying here. Nor am I blaming anyone for the grievous sin of their spouse. A the very real consequence for that sin may be that the person that's being abu- abused needs to leave for the safety of themselves and the, their kids and the family. Okay? So I want to be careful. But I also want to communicate what Jesus is communicating here because he does not shy away from this, that God intends for marriage to be an unbroken bond between a husband and a wife for life. This is what he's saying. We can't get around that. There's no way out. He's specifically addressing here, though, the Pharisees' desire to permit divorce for any reason and so, so that he can uh, challenge everyone listening to a, to a greater commitment to God. This is, is Jesus' motive. And so Mark doesn't tell us how the Pharisees responded to Jesus' argument. It just kind of ends there. Instead, he focuses on the teaching moment that Jesus has in the next scene with his disciples. Look at verse 10. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So now it's the disciples' turn to question him about this matter, right? Cause because they're they're Jews. They, they they know the school of thought. They're rolling this around in their head too. Well, hold on, which one is it? Right? Is it adultery? Is it anything? And Jesus, because he's loving and gentle and kind and has called them to himself, doesn't answer their question with a question. He answers their question. If a man divorces his wife and marries another woman, the man commits adultery against his wife. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another man, the woman commits adultery against her husband. The implication here is that if a man divorces his spouse for any frivolous reason... Saying, listen, you better choke down that meal and be grateful for it. Right? You can't, you, you can't be signing a writ of divorce on that napkin while you're spitting the food out. If a man divorces his spouse for any frivolous reason as the Pharisees encouraged, that man then marries another woman. Jesus is saying that he commits adultery because the first Divorce isn't actually valid, and he's still bound to his first wife. And the same thing is true if the wife divorces her husband under the same frivolous circumstances. Now, in Matthew's account, again of this um, scene, Jesus says, "I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery." And so Matthew spells out there that that uh, it seems that Jesus is making room for uh, adultery as valid grounds for a divorce. Mark doesn't include that. He doesn't include that, um, the the exception for sexual immorality. It's possible that it's implied due to the fact that it's widely accepted uh, as a cause for divorce in both the conservative and the liberal schools of thought in that time, but that's not ultimately what Jesus is focusing on anyway right here. that's That's not the main idea. That's not the focus. He's teaching his disciples to focus on marriage and not divorce. You see that the Pharisees framed everything around uh, what marriage is by what divorce is. And Jesus says, no, that's the wrong way to look at it. He wants them to understand the God-given, God-designed, God-intended nature of the marriage relationship. Marriage is never meant to be viewed in terms of what can break it. It's always meant to be viewed in terms of who has bonded it together. Jesus wants his disciples to focus on commitment rather than looking for a way out. Now, we could say a lot more here about God's design for marriage. We could talk about how Jesus, even in this discussion, leaves no conceivable room for marriage outside of the context of one male and one female as he has created them to be male and female for life. It's because of the created order that a man leaves his father and his mother who are married to each other and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. One man, one woman in a lifelong union. This is God's intent, his created design. We could talk more about that. We could also delve into what the Apostle Paul has to say about how a husband and wife ought to live with each other in marriage and, and relate to one another in marriage and we'll do that when we when we go into um, we're going to go into Ephesians after after we finish the Gospel of Mark. We'll get there, okay? But but those are important aspects of marriage for us, and we need to have conversations about those. We need to understand because that is a is a um, is an element of discipleship. It's an element of how we follow Jesus together. It's not a separate thing, but we don't have room in in our time together this morning to to exhaust all of it. Nor could you ever cover all of that in, in one sermon anyway. We we need to help each other understand God's intent and his design for marriage and keeping encouraging each other to follow that design because we're prone to look for ways around it, ways out of it. And, and so that's all I'm gonna say about those things for now. Okay. Because I don't want us to lose focus on what Mark is doing here by including this marriage debate between Jesus and the Pharisees in this part of his gospel. Remember, this is one small story in a larger story, 16 chapters that Mark has written in an account of Jesus's life, which means he put it there on purpose for a reason, right? And so we we need to ask the question, why did Mark put this story in here? Why did Mark put it here, why did he put it where he put it in his gospel? If you remember how Mark writes his gospel, he doesn't always keep things in chronological order. He orders his stories in, in, uh, in a way that draws out major themes. Now, this happens to be in chronological order, which pretty much the rest of his gospel is going to be because we're getting to the last week of Jesus's life. But there's a reason here. There's a reason why he puts this in here. They're on their way to Jerusalem, where the disciples assume that Jesus is going to take the throne, right? But the longer they talk about uh, about it with Jesus, the less glamorous and the more costly they realize that it's becoming to follow him. And so they may be tempted to look for a way out, and we know that Judas eventually will, and he'll find one. But Jesus lovingly and patiently clarifies the kingdom for his disciples and prods them to greater commitment to himself. Ever since Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah in chapter 8, Mark gives us stories like this that clarify what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah and what it means for us to follow him as his disciples. And, And none of it is what the disciples have in mind. He keeps talking about the necessity of suffering and death, but they keep thinking about power and status. They want to be great, and he tells them to make uh, themselves lower than everyone else, and so we need to see this marriage debate in that context. Jesus is teaching his disciples here what it means to follow him, the commitment that's required literally to their death. This is what Mark is getting at. He wants anyone who reads his gospel, to see Jesus for who he really is, to believe him and to be committed to him for life, no matter the cost. Discipleship is not just about learning God's ways from a great teacher, the greatest teacher. It's about living in deep, loving union and fellowship with Jesus as his bride. It's a union that God joins together by his grace and it can never be broken. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, he's gonna prove that this is where we're headed. This teaching on marriage comes as Jesus is on his way to give his life for the sake of an adulterous bride. While we were still sinners, the Bible says that we were still in, 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 in sin and rebellion against God, giving our love away to anything and everything else. And, and, and being in rebellion against God, hating him, instead of giving us a certificate of divorce and sending us away, God came near to us in Jesus. He sent the bridegroom. And he showed us the extent of his commitment to us by taking the shame and the guilt of our indecency in every form and suffering the righteous wrath of the Father in our place. Jesus knows what it feels like to long for a way out. You remember the prayer in the garden? We'll get to that. If there's any other way, Father, please take this cup from me. But because it was a necessary part of the Father's plan to join sinful people to himself, in an eternal bond, and because Jesus loved his bride with an unwavering love, he said, not my will, but yours be done. There is no way out, and I'm okay with that. And he faithfully died for the unfaithfulness of his people. Then three days later, he rose in power and victory over sin and death, so that the bond of unity between the bridegroom and his bride can never be broken. No sin, no power, Nothing can separate us anymore. He paid the ultimate price to redeem you from an adulterous way of life and cleanse you from all unrighteousness so that he can present you to his father as the pure and spotless bride. Because of this, then, he calls you and me to be totally committed to him. He calls us to be totally committed to our spouse in earthly marriage as a display of the grace-filled relationship between Christ, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. But here's the thing. None of us can display that relationship perfectly. We need grace in order to display grace, amen? In earthly marriage, a sinner is being united to another sinner. That doesn't work out very well. And that bond can only be held together by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so if you've remained faithful to your spouse all these years, it's only because Christ has been faithful to you. So my hope for you this morning is that you celebrate those years of faithfulness and you continue to desperately cling to his grace as you commit yourself to greater expressions of sacrificial love for your spouse. If you've been wounded by a hard-hearted spouse who found a way out, I'm sorry. I-, I want I want to grieve with you. I know that's painful. And my prayer for you is that you find comfort this morning in the unbreakable faithfulness of Jesus. My hope is that you continue to trust in His ability to care for your heart and to convict, the heart of the one who sinned against you. And that even if the marriage bond, the earthly marriage bond is beyond the possibility of restoration, the heart is not as long as it continues to beat. The nature of the gospel proves that Jesus rescues hard hearted, rebellious sinners in their deepest hatred toward him. God reaches in, grabs our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, gives us life. He rescues the hard-hearted and rebellious sinners, and he gives them a new heart to love and obey him because he's the redeemer. He is the reconciler, the one who reconciles us to God and to one another. And so pray that Christ would rescue and restore your ex who has wounded you just as he has rescued and restored you. And if you've been the hard-hearted spouse, and you have guilt and shame over separating something that God has joined together. My hope is that you behold Christ this morning and be reminded of his faithful love for you. Even in your most adulterous state, his love for you is unchanging because it's not rooted in your faithfulness, it's rooted in his. Praise God for that. Does that mean we should go on sinning that grace may abound? absolutely not. But it does mean that no matter how much you fail him, we have to know this. No matter how much you fail him, Christ will never send you away. Never send you away because he has united you to himself by grace through faith. And now Paul promises it to us in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not even you. Praise God for that. And if you've never been married, but you hope to be someday, my prayer is that you view marriage by what God has intended it to be and not by what man has permitted in it. That you would see it as a reflection of your union with Christ and commit yourself wholeheartedly to your spouse as a reflection of your commitment to your heavenly bridegroom and his commitment to you. His his commitment enables your commitment. And if you're not a Christ follower, my prayer is that Christ has shown you his faithfulness today through his word, that the spirit does the convincing here and the convicting. And that that evidence is is so overwhelming about who he is and, 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 and that he is who he says he is and that he does what he says he does, that today is the day that you are convinced of your need for him. And his word says, he promises that if you confess your sins, Uh, that he is faithful and and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He promises that he will never send away anyone who the Father draws to him. And so confess your unfaithfulness to him this morning. He knows, he knows. And trust in his faithfulness to you through his self-giving sacrifice on the cross and be united to him forever through faith in his finished work. And then lastly, for all of us who have been united to Christ in faith, my prayer is that we would keep ever before us this call from Jesus to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him, and that we would see that, that what he's called us to, he, he's given us the power to do. Through his own life, death, and resurrection, we can remain committed to him as we endure suffering and trials in this life because he has united himself to us permanently, and, and he will supply a way out of temptation so that we don't look for a way out of obedience. We must see marriage for what God intends it to be a lifelong commitment between a man and and a woman bonded together in self-giving love by God and the reflection of an eternal bond that we have with Christ himself by God's grace through faith. Marriage and discipleship both require wholehearted commitment, and all-in mentality. We must not enter into either one looking for a loophole or looking for a way out. The heart of a Christ follower must not be self-seeking, It must not be self-defensive. It must be self-denying. And the more we keep the faithfulness of our bridegroom in view, the more we will desire to be faithful as his bride. It's a glorious union bonded by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Amen? Father, we thank you for the bond that you've given to us in your Son, we thank you that it's unbreakable, not because of uh, of anything that's in us, but because of everything that's in you. We thank you that Christ remains faithful forever, and in His faithfulness, He's taking His bride, having uh, rescued us from from condemnation and guilt of our sin, and now uh, cleansing us from here to eternity, from from one degree of glory to the next, so that. On the day of the Lord, when He returns, we will be presented to the Father, perfect and spotless as His bride, and we will celebrate together in the great wedding feast. Lord, we are so humbled and grateful for Your commitment to us when we fail You over and over and over again every day. And we are grateful that Christ Himself has. Uh, sealed this bond this covenant with us through his own blood and that you have risen him from the grave and that because we are united to him in his death we will be united with him in his life for all eternity we long for that day lord and we pray that you would help us strengthen our hearts as we continue to suffer here in various ways that we would not look for an easy way out but that we would take hold of Christ and his faithfulness and know that he holds fast to us and nothing can snatch us from his hand. Give us the strength to endure. Give us the joy of knowing our bridegroom in the midst of this life that we live here. We thank you, Lord, and we we pray all of this in the glorious name of our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen.